Father, we, we thank you tonight that you are a God who places dreams inside of us. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now that you would help us to dream bigger, to dream in line with your dreams for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you tonight about dreaming bigger, dreaming bigger. All of us have a dream for our lives, and if we don't, we're trying to find that dream. And when I was four years old, I told my mom that I had uh, one of two things that I wanted to be. I wanted to be either a doctor, because my dad is a psychiatrist, and I thought it would be cool to be like my dad, or I wanted to be a trash man. Because to me, as a four-year-old, the idea of hanging on to the back of a pickup truck or a trash truck all day and getting paid for it sounded like a pretty good deal. But as I got older, I had a desire to go into politics, and uh, I was kind of an audacious uh, third grader, I guess, maybe a little bit prideful, too, because I told my third grade teacher I wanted to be the president of the United States. And I was in for kind of a reality check when she said, oh, that's great. What would you do if you were the president? And I had no idea what I would do. I'd just stand there and look important. That was about as far as I had gotten in my, in my dream. But all of us here, we have some kind of dream. But looking back on, on my dreams, my dreams weren't too big. They were too small. Because my dreams only encompassed my life. And if my dream came to fruition, came to fulfillment... The only life that would be benefited by that dream is mine. So maybe here today you have a dream to be promoted within your company, a dream to get married or to have kids, a dream to get promoted within the church. But I want us tonight to ask the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts, to truly be honest with ourselves. Is our dream about just us? Or does it fit within the larger plan of God, his eternal plan? That's where we're headed tonight. Do we need to dream bigger? Does our dream need to fit within the construct of God's redemptive plan for this universe? And thankfully, we're not the first, person, first people who have considered whether their dreams are too small. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and 18 of a son of a king who wrestled with this very question. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, 55. We're going to read all the way through 18, verse 5, 1 Samuel. It says, As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. 
And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. I want to ask you a question based on this passage. Why did Jonathan so readily give up his right to become king? I mean, this is an amazing moment because here the oldest son of the first king of Israel, in one moment, he had this dream of being king. He was in line. That was the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, the 20-year plan set forth by his dad. As the oldest, he would become king. And yet in one moment, he decides to give all of it up for a peer, someone that it would seem from the outside would be a rival to him, someone around the same age as him, someone living in the same time in the same geographical space. Why was Jonathan so readily available to give up his right to be king? And if we can answer that question, I think we can answer the question of whether we need to dream bigger. So we're going to do some investigative digging. I hope you can follow along with me a little bit because I want to give you some of the background to how Jonathan landed at the spot that he did in making this decision. So to start, let's look at Saul and David. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was everything that you'd want in a king. He was tall. He was handsome. He was the very person that the people of Israel wanted. They had cried out to Samuel, the leader of the nation at that time, for a king because they wanted to be like every other nation. Saul wasn't too happy about that because God was supposed to be the king of Israel. Israel was supposed to be distinct from its surrounding neighbors and that God was to be their king. But God said, if they want a king, give them a king. And that man was Saul. But Saul wasn't from the tribe of Judah. And that's an important fact because Jacob, one of the three patriarchs, when he was blessing his sons, he had a moment at the end of his life where he went through his, all of his sons. He spoke a blessing. He spoke a prophecy over them, defining who they were and what they would be. He got to Judah, his fourth-born son. And in verse 10 of Genesis 49, Jacob prophesies. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So everyone within Israel, at least anybody who studied the first five books of the Bible, what they had at that time, knew that the leader, the the king of this nation would eventually come from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Benjamin. Are you tracking with me so far? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul disqualified himself because of two really bad decisions that he made. The second being... God told him through the prophet Samuel to destroy a group called the Amalekites. And Saul disobeyed. He spared the king of the Amalekites, Agag, and he didn't kill all the sheep and the oxen and the cattle. And because of that, Samuel spoke to him on behalf of God, 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. He said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And we see later on, the next chapter, that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord began to torment him. And that's where David enters the picture. 
because Saul's servants recognized that something was wrong with their master. And so they suggested hiring somebody who was skilled in playing the harp that could soothe Saul while he was being tormented. And one of the young men in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18, answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So there was something on David's life. He could play the harp. He was a, a worshiper of God. And so this young man says, We need to bring this guy into your palace, king, and let him play for you. So Saul sends servants to David's father's house, Jesse, twice. Now, that's an important fact because we'll get to this in a little bit. But Saul was aware of who David's father was. For Samuel chapter 16, verse 19, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. So there's a clear understanding in Saul's mind whose father David is. Later on, when David does his thing, Saul likes him. He says, I want to keep this guy around. He sends messengers back to Jesse and says, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. So why is it important that David is the son of Jesse? Well, Jesse was the grandson of Boaz, who you may know Boaz, because Boaz was a hero in that time. He had redeemed a woman named Ruth, a Moabitess, and he had shown her exceptional kindness. And in Ruth chapter 4, as the writer of Ruth is kind of wrapping a bow around this story and uh, describing just how great Boaz is and Ruth for what they did, it says the people in Ruth chapter 4 said, We are witnesses. The Lord, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Apophratha and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So here's the point. Boaz was a hero during that day. He was of the line of Judah. And people recognized that from his line was going to become a king later on. And Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And David was the son of Jesse. Are you tracking with me? So that sets the stage for 1 Samuel chapter 17, a story that if you've been in church long enough, or even for a little bit, you know the story David and Goliath. David and Goliath are fighting. It's one of the most intense moments in Israel's history because whoever wins that battle, I mean, the, the loser of that battle, their whole nation, their whole army, and their families are going to be subjugated to slavery and to the opposing enemy. And so here Saul is, the king of Israel. He's next to his right-hand man, Abner, his commander, and they're watching this battle take place. And this is where we pick up Chapter 17, verse 55, it says, As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Now, I don't want you to miss what's happening here because this is an intense moment. This is a fearful moment. I mean, the Israelites are looking at a five-foot-five Jewish boy going up against a ten-foot behemoth of a man. 
And Saul, in the midst of the two of them coming together, elbows his buddy and says, Hey, Abner, whose son is this guy? And Abner's thinking, can we have this conversation a little bit later? Because right now our lives are in the balance right here. Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And really, I don't care. I mean, that, I added that part, but that's what he's thinking. And as this battle is taking place, Saul whispers to him, inquire whose son that boy is. So you know the story. David takes his sling, his rock, hurls it at Goliath. Goliath comes tumbling down. Now, why would Saul ask Abner whose son David was in the middle of a battle? Why would he ask a question that he already knew the answer to? He already had sent servants to Jesse's house twice on behalf of David. He was very well aware that David was the son of Jesse. Why would he ask his commander Abner that question that he already knew in the most pivotal moment of his country's history? I would suggest to you because he had an epiphany, Saul, in that moment. He recognized that he lived with the reality that he had messed up that Samuel had prophesied that the kingdom was being torn from him. He recognized every day that God wasn't with him while this t- spirit tormented him. He recognized he was from the tribe of Benjamin and that there had been this prophecy about the king coming from the tribe of Judah. And he, as he sees this Jewish boy who was a shepherd taking out those stones, all of a sudden it dawns on him that God is with David, that he's the son of Jesse, who's the grandson of Boaz, who's a descendant of Judah. This is God's man. This is the next king of Israel. And he recognizes that he's got to break the news to his commander, and more importantly, to his son. And while this battle is taking place between David and Goliath, everybody on Israel's side has no idea what's going to happen. They think that David is going to get squashed except for Saul because he recognizes this is God's man. God is with him. He's got to let Abner know. He's got to let his son Jonathan know. And so he tells Abner, hey, whose son is this guy? Picking up in Chapter 18, verse 1, says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul. So what happened before this was, in verse, chapter 7, verse 57, As soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. So literally, David still has Goliath's head in his hand, and he presents it to Saul. Saul and Abner are having a conversation. We think Jonathan was either there or he was nearby, close enough to hear the conversation. Saul says to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And now all of a sudden, in the presence of Abner and in the presence of Jonathan, the light bulb goes off in Jonathan's head. Wait a second. This is David. This is the son of Jesse. 
This is the next king, which means I'm not going to become king. Jonathan had everything going for him. He was loved by the people. He was a fierce warrior in his own right. He he and his servant had taken on a Philistine garrison and defeated them, just the two of them. He was loyal to his dad. He was loved by God. He had done nothing wrong to forfeit this dream of his. But in one moment, he watches a peer of his be catapulted to national fame, become a hero, and to strip his dream from him to be the next king. What do you do when your dream is shattered before your eyes? What do you do when the sins of those closest to you cost you the only thing that you ever wanted? This was Saul's fault. Saul had disobeyed God. And now as a result of that, Jonathan's not receiving an inheritance that he always thought he would have. What do you do when your parents get divorced? What do you do when a spouse takes a job that you're not in agreement with? What do you do when you see your dreams crushed before your eyes? This is what Jonathan does. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he, meaning David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was, the, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Don't miss how remarkable this moment is. His dream has been stripped from him. God has given him a small glimpse of what is about to unfold. And instead of Jonathan grabbing a hold of his small dream of being king, he lets go completely. He doesn't see the complete roadmap. It doesn't come with an explanation. But the part that he does see, he recognizes that I trust in the God behind what's happening here, what's being orchestrated. And he decides to attach himself to God, to God's plan that's unfolding, and to the hero of God's plan that's unfolding in David. The soul of Jonathan was knit, literally attached to the soul of David. There's an inseparable devotion. That's the meaning behind that word attached or knit. Jonathan has attached himself to God. We know he was a man who feared God. And now that God has unveiled his plan and his plan for Jonathan's life, Jonathan has attached himself to God's dream for his life. And he's attached himself to the person in God's dream for his life being David. The knitting of souls, this covenant, is when your well-being is intertwined with the well-being of the person you've made a covenant with. Verse 3 of chapter 18, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. This wasn't a temporary thing. This wasn't, hey, let's see how this works out. I'm going to give you a couple years, and if it doesn't go well, I'm going to take my rightful place. No, this was a thing like, hey, as long as you go, I want you to know I'm hitching my wagon to you. I'm aligning myself with your life. I'm going to be your most loyal supporter. I'm attaching myself to God's plan, to your life, and what God is doing. And we have these moments where we need to attach. Especially amongst my generation, we don't like to attach to anything. But I remember when I first came to this church, 
in the midst of all these silly dreams that I had that I shared with you, all of a sudden I heard a man share a vision about winning the city. And then I recognized that my small life, that in the grand scheme of things is like a blip in comparison to eternal, into compared to etern, uh, eternity. There it is. My life meant nothing in that large scale. But if I hitched myself to a larger plan that was unfolding, namely God's eternal purposes, namely what he was doing in this community, in this city, I could be a part of something great. I remember the day that God revealed to me uh, my wife, who my wife was going to be. And prior to that moment, I had a list of things. I wanted a woman. I mean, she had to be this. She had to be that. She had to be this and that. I mean, that thing was a long list, baby. (laughs) And then I'll never forget, I was living with Pastor David Hermes as a single man in his basement. And I'd been hanging around my wife, Elise, in the same group of friends, never giving her a second thought. And in that moment, I can remember it like it was yesterday. God spoke to me, that's your wife. And it was like in a moment, that list became obsolete because the list all of a sudden became one big box named Elise Catchings that I needed to check because God had revealed a plan and a person that was a part of the plan. And it sure, he- it sure as heck helped that she was a beautiful part of his plan. And at that point... It's just a matter of attaching myself to what God was already doing. When God blows up your small, me-centered dream, what do you do? You attach yourself to the new plan that he's revealing to you. Things in our lives that we have to attach to people that he puts in our lives to be a part of, to, that are a part of his plan. But then there are things that we have to detach from. And in verse Four of chapter 18, it says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. That same armor that Jonathan had used, the same sword, bow, and belt he had used to fight that Philistine garrison, garrison was no longer of any value to him because he was not going to become king. And so he had to detach himself from this armor, he gives it up to David. And let me speak to those of you who may be struggling with jealousy right now. There's a person in your life who maybe God has called you to protect, and yet you don't see it as protection, protecting them. You see it as a rival or as a threat. So here's the thing about this story is that Saul had tried to put his armor on David, but it didn't fit. It was too big. The only armor that would fit David was Jonathan's. So Jonathan had to surrender his dreams to put this armor on his friend that fit perfectly and would be the protection for David's life the rest of his life. See, that person that maybe you're jealous of, that you're rubbing up against, maybe God has put them in your life for you to be protecting them, for you to be praying for them, for you to be helping them in their progress. And if you just hold on to that old dream, then you're just carrying around a bunch of clunky armor that doesn't fit, that's going to weigh you down. How many of us need to detach ourselves 
from our old dreams. Maybe we're holding on to the number of a high school sweetheart just in case things don't work out with our spouse. (laughs) Maybe many of us, God has led us to a job. We remember praying for it, but all of a sudden things are getting rocky and we have a resignation letter saved for convenience. Or maybe we have an exit plan just in case this small group doesn't work out, this person rubs us the wrong way, this usher doesn't greet us the right place or the right way or put us in the right seat. Verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. In attaching himself to David and detaching himself from his old dreams, Jonathan would later save David's life, become his most loyal friend, and aid David in becoming Israel's greatest king. And from King David would come one who is the king of kings, Jesus Christ. See, unbeknownst to Jonathan, when he detached himself from this limited, puny dream to be king of Israel, to attach himself to God's glorious plan of redeeming the world through Jesus Christ, he was buying into a bigger dream. Little did Jonathan know that his act of humility would foreshadow a greater act of humility. Like Jonathan, Jesus would strip himself of privilege and come to the earth to serve God's greater purpose. He dismissed his own desire and on the cross said, not my will, but yours be done. Now we have an invitation from God to be like Jonathan. Better yet, to be like Christ and lay aside our selfish, me-centered dreams to attach ourselves to God, to the people he's placed in our lives and the massive, eternal, glorious plan of redemption that he has for us. The question is, will we dream bigger? Let's pray.